Well, hello again, church family. Uh, my name is Russ Adams, and I'm the teacher in Department A33. And it's uh, it's been my privilege to bring several lessons to you by now, so uh, I'm feeling more and more comfortable doing this, and uh, uh, just very glad to be in God's Word with you uh, together today. So uh, just uh, look forward to this lesson. Uh, in the book of Luke, we are starting a new quarter uh, but uh, as, you, as you know, we're studying straight through uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, be, be uh, two quarters consecutively, so we're just continuing uh, the study we began uh, last time. Uh, just for a uh, little review, of course, uh, the Gospel of Luke is uh, written by Dr. Luke. Uh, it's part of a, a two-volume work that was written by him. Uh, you know, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are actually a continuous work. Uh, it was uh, written, uh, well, he tells us himself in Luke chapter 1. Let's go ahead and look there uh, in the first four verses. These are the words of, of Luke as he undertakes this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So again, this is written by Luke, uh, a doctor, a, a historian actually, he's a very good writer, and uh, he's writing to someone called Theophilus. That's friend of God, actually. Uh, we really don't know who Theophilus is. It may even be a generic term, but there's a lot of good reasons to believe that it was actually a person and uh, a Gentile, uh, a new believer, and he had heard a lot of things uh, about uh, this person he had placed his faith in. And apparently he uh, engaged Luke to uh, uh, set everything out in an orderly fashion so that he could know uh, with, some, uh, uh, with some detail and some certain certainty the things that, uh, that he had been taught. So that was the purpose of, of uh, Luke writing this. Uh, his uh, style is uh, uh, very methodical. Uh, it's very thematic. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, we have uh, spent this last quarter, of course, going through the first part of the book. And we're really at a transition point. As we start this new quarter, there really is a transition in the narrative. Uh, this last quarter, we have spent uh, introducing Jesus. Uh, he, you know, he arrives on the scene, uh, and he has spent a great deal of the, uh, uh, the, the last lessons uh, establishing his messiahship, you know, uh, giving authoritative proofs of who he is in, in the form of miracles. It's kind of an interesting uh, thing to realize that uh, uh, almost all the miracles in the book of Luke uh, we have studied up to this point. There's only two or three remaining. And uh, so the transition uh, that's occurring here is actually found in one of the verses that uh, uh, brackets our, our background passage today. So Let's turn to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. This was in last week's background passage. And Luke 9, 51 says, And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
And that really is the verse that establishes the transition. Everything up to this point has been authenticating himself and his ministry and his messiahship. And now he is going to the cross resolutely. Uh, when you hear that phrase, going to Jerusalem, that's really what that means. Uh, geographically, there's several trips to Jerusalem between now and then, but uh, uh, when you see that phrase that he is going to Jerusalem, it, it simply means that he is going to the cross. He knows that's his mission. He knows what the timing is, and he is on his way there. Now, obviously, that uh, entails a little bit of pressure uh, on, on the schedule, if you will. Uh, he wants to get the disciples prepared for what's ahead. Uh, he wants to make sure they understand exactly what they're facing. Uh, he wants to train them and equip them. Uh, all these things that uh, are going to be happening here is, is uh, uh, really what he's, what he's about in these, in these chapters as, as we uh, will move forward here. So it's a big transition, and you'll see that. On the other side of uh, the background passage today, and this is up in chapter 13, we'll go ahead and turn there, Luke 13, and verse 22, it says, As he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. So there it is again. He's on his way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross. And that, those verses actually kind of bracket the entire background passage today. Uh, the background passage is Luke chapter 10, verse 1 through Luke 13, 21. That is a large passage. It's, uh, it's very lengthy, and it's, it's too much to cover even with an overview approach. Uh, whenever I'm, I'm teaching, I always like to try to cover all the background passage and not just the focal passage, at least in some manner. And uh, uh, I have to admit I've met my match on this one. There's just too much there. Uh, so what, I, what I've attempted to do is just kind of look through it. Uh, I do encourage you to read it all, always. I always encourage my class to read the entire background passage. There's just so much of importance, and you don't want to miss anything. So uh, you know, I always say to, to read it thoughtfully and prayerfully and, and see what uh, God opens up to you in those, in those passages. But if you look at that entire background passage, which is really uh, almost four chapters long, we do see some things here that, again, fit that, that transition I talked about. There's great stress on prayer on how to pray, on the importance of it. Uh, this is so important to his disciples. This is going to be their, their resource, their main resource as, as, the, as the days go forward, uh, to, to encourage them to go to the Father in prayer. There's also a great emphasis on uh, the need of and the joy of intimacy with God. This is a complete paradigm shift from what they've experienced in their religious life before. They've, they've always had a, a sense of, of uh, performing, you know, duty according to a structure, uh, and now what's important is 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 the relationship they have with the living God. You know, so that's this is uh, stressed quite a bit in this in this uh, passage. Uh, again, there's very uh, pointed preparation of the disciples for for what's ahead. Uh, he uh, tells them in in no uncertain terms what's ahead for him and for them in the days ahead. And another thing that uh, uh, appears more and more is a sharpening of the conflict Jesus has with the religious establishment, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees. There's incident after incident. Uh, 
there has always been a, a degree of uh, mistrust, perhaps, and everything uh, in, in the earlier chapters and some attempts to try to, to uh, uh, get Jesus to, in something that they might trap him or question him on. Uh, but that in these chapters, it moves into open hostility. It is, it is uh, very marked. Uh, there's even uh, uh, talk recorded of you know what they will have to do to, to remove Jesus from the from the picture, you know. So it's uh, it's a very uh, th- there's a level of hostility that appears here. So uh, that kind of plays into the lesson today a little bit in the fact that uh, it's often assumed uh, that what we're going to study has that as a background, and I don't think it does. So I'll explain that a little bit more here in just a moment. Okay, well, that uh, brings us up to our focal passage for the day, and that's found in uh, uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is uh, a very familiar passage of Scripture to us. Uh, We know it as the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Like I say, it's very, very familiar. Uh, It's something that's in the common vernacular. People who don't even know their Bibles know about the Good Samaritan. And for those of us who are raised in a tradition of faith, it's probably one of the first Bible stories we remember learning. You know, and, I, and anytime I teach a familiar passage like this, I always point out the danger of that. Uh, because we're familiar with it, we just tend to skip right over it almost. So we need to look at it with fresh eyes. And I'd like for us to pray about that right now as we begin this study. Father God, as we study this familiar portion of your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth. By the Holy Spirit's opening of the scriptures to us, be at work in us and use this time to make us more like your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So let's establish the setting. Let's look at verse 25 in chapter 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So we have a lawyer, or we would refer to him elsewhere as a scribe, one of the experts in the law, uh, has a question for Jesus. And the text here says he put him to the test. It was to test him. And that's where I wanted to issue that caution about hostility. Um, that word does not necessarily have the connotation of hostility here. Uh, and in fact, uh, the scribes often had honest questions for Jesus, you know, which you might consider a, a test of some kind. They wanted to find an answer to some difficult question. So let's, let's take a look at one. We're going to uh, leave the the text here for just a moment and look at another passage in Mark, chapter 12. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Mark chapter 12, 28 through 34. Okay? Completely different incident here. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Now, this was a a live question at the time. Scholars debated this. And I think this scribe was, was seeking an honest answer to this very difficult question. 
And in verse 29, Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. I really love this passage because uh, we know that Jesus knows the hearts of his questioners. He knows what they're thinking. Uh, in fact, in, that's one of the features of the Gospel of Luke, is Luke points this out very often, that he knew what they were thinking you know, when he has a response. Uh, in this case, Jesus knows this scribe's heart. He is really honestly grappling with the real meaning of the law. And Jesus understands that uh, uh, he is very, very close to the point of recognizing his need for salvation and where that salvation can be obtained. I think that's why he gives that, that answer to him of being not far from the kingdom of God. He understands that uh, uh, this is a very high bar to love the Lord that way and to love others as yourself you know, is, is, a, is a very, very uh, high bar to expect. And uh, I think the scribe is, is, is coming to understand that in a, in a very meaningful way. Uh, it's far beyond just religious observances or anything like that. It's just a matter of the heart and of total, total, absolute obedience to things. Uh, he says, if you do that, you've got all the law and the prophets. You know, so that's, that's uh, an interesting counterpart I think you'll find to today's passage. A lot of this is echoed in our focal passage today, but in a very, very different way. So I just wanted to put that out there as, a, as an introduction, and we'll see what's different about uh, today's account. So uh, now let's uh, go back to Luke chapter 10 and go back to verse 25. And we'll see how this setup is a little bit different from before. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So that's an interesting question he's just asked. Um, I saw today's passage referred to in one of my commentaries as the gospel parable. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm not sure I've ever thought of it that way before. Uh, but we are going to see the gospel set forth in this familiar story uh, very clearly. You know, part of, a, uh, of an effective gospel presentation is getting across the need for salvation. You know, I've, I've uh, heard it sometimes said that before you can talk to anyone about being saved, you have to explain to them that they're lost. You know, and I think that's uh, very often the case as we uh, share the gospel with others, you know. Um, this lawyer's question has some elements in it that uh, demonstrate just such an incorrect understanding of his spiritual condition. 
So let's take a look at that. First of all, he began with, what must I do? That little phrase, I do. This reflects the universal expectation people have uh, that they can earn favorable standing with God through their own efforts. Scripture very clearly teaches otherwise, of course. Uh, Psalm 14.3 is quoted in Romans 3.10. And this is the very simple statement that there is no one righteous, not even one. And Scripture abounds with other examples of this same truth. So look at the second part of his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this one's pretty interesting because I think we tend to read right past that word inherit and just assume that we're talking about obtaining salvation. But an, an inheritance, uh, he's not talking about obtaining it at all. An inheritance is something that's yours already. You just don't have possession of it yet. So when you look at that lawyer's question, what he's really asking is, he, he, he believes, because of his position as a, as a Jew and an observant Jew, that eternal life is his already. He just wants Jesus to confirm that he's doing enough to make sure it's secure. He wants to be reaffirmed. So let's see what Jesus says about that. He very effectively addresses it uh, by doing what Jesus often does as a master teacher. He answers this lawyer's question with a question of his own, and he takes him back to the very law he believes he is fulfilling. So let's look at verses 26 through 28. And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, the lawyer has given a very good answer, hasn't he? In fact, it's the exact same answer that Jesus gave to the other scribe who had asked him the question about the greatest commandment. It was a perfect summary of what the law is. But there's something different this time. Jesus has confirmed the correctness of his answer but he added something at the end. That actually comes from Leviticus 18.5, uh, when he tells the lawyer, do this and you will live. Now that makes a distinction between knowing the law and doing it. They're, those are two different things. And I think he has uh, uh, engaged with the lawyer's question very, very uh, interestingly at this point. Our lawyer knows he has a problem. Jesus is able to, to, to ascertain his thoughts, and uh, uh, I think he knows that. But what's interesting is, rather than taking this as an opportunity to repent, uh, our lawyer tries to shift the goalposts. So let's look at verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So we're told just right out there that uh, this lawyer wants to justify himself by doing this. You know, when you think about what he's really saying, he's telling Jesus, uh, actually, 
I can fulfill the law's requirement to love my neighbor as myself as long as I get to choose who my neighbor is. That's where the goalposts have been shifted. And that's the reason Jesus responds with his uh, very famous story. I'm just going to read the whole passage here of, the, you know, of, of his uh, response, the story of the Good Samaritan, and then we'll go back and look at some things in it. So this will be verses 30 through 35. Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So that's the story Jesus told to try to open up this question of who my neighbor is. So the scene is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, a few years back, I had the privilege of uh, taking a tour of Israel. And uh, I got to actually be on this road or one very near it. Uh, it's a very interesting thing. In, a, in the space of about 17 miles, it's not a very long road at all, but the road drops 3,300 feet. Uh, you go from the uh, mountainous area of Jerusalem. Uh, you actually pass through the uh, sea level marker along the road at one point, and you head for the, uh, for the, uh, the plain down there where the, red, where the Dead Sea is. Uh, it's very rugged, it's deserted, it's, it's desert, and uh, of course the scriptures tell us at this time that it was uh, uh, plagued with, with uh, bands of thieves and thugs. Uh, even today, it's, a, it's not an entirely safe place. Uh, the the uh, conflict uh, between the, the uh, Palestinians and, and, and the state of Israel uh, it runs right through this area. So uh, it's, it's definitely a, a very interesting road, and, and it's, it's just known to be dangerous. You know? So he put the, the story in a very dangerous setting. Then we have our victim. Now, he's not identified and I believe that's very intentional. What we know about him is he is simply a man who was robbed and stripped and beaten nearly to death. So we have our first two passers-by that are introduced next. We have a priest and a Levite. Now pretty clearly uh, they represent the Jewish religious establishment. And our lawyer certainly found himself fitting in with them in this story, I think, through that point. Now, surely they were aware of the just moral necessity of helping this man just out of common decency. And that's not even to mention the moral requirements of the law. 
but they found reasons not to stop and help. So what are they? Well, we aren't told. Now, it could very well have been concern about ritual defilement. Uh, The man was naked, and that was offensive. Uh, He was bloody. That would have been offensive. Uh, So there were any number of reasons if they were concerned about ritual purity, they might have decided not to involve themselves there. Uh, It could have been a much more practical concern of the guys who did this might still be nearby. Uh, Maybe it was just the fact that they were on their way somewhere and needed to get where they were going. Um, There were just uh, all kinds of concerns. It may have just been the same concern that we often hear expressed as, I just don't want to get involved. Uh, Getting involved in a situation may involve entanglements and stuff, and they just maybe wanted to avoid those. You know, in the end, it really doesn't matter. Compassion was needed here, and they didn't show it. So now comes our Samaritan. Now, the introduction of a Samaritan into the story would have been a pretty shocking element. Uh, Just as a a quick review, uh, the Samaritans lived in the region between Judea and Galilee, just to the north of of Jerusalem. Uh, In in modern terms, you could think of it as the West Bank. Uh, And uh, what what the Samaritans were ethnically, they, they were descendants of a very tiny number of Israelites who were left behind uh, when the uh, Assyrians and the Babylonians uh, conquered uh, Israel uh, long ago. Uh, They left a few people behind. And over time, those people uh, intermarried with people that moved back into the region from the conquering empires. Uh, it's, they have a really interesting story. They, um, they held on to the Pentateuch, you know, so they kind of considered themselves truly Jewish, but they also syncretized their religion with a lot of the religions of those who came in. Uh, there was just a lot of corruption of things. They, um, they believed when the uh, Israelites returned from the Babylonian captivity that they brought back a version of the Pentateuch and the law that was uh, that was corrupted, and that theirs was the correct one. Uh, they believed that uh, worship needed to take place in different places and all this sort of thing. And uh, there, there was just a lot of cause for tension and hostility. And the, and the short of it is, uh, Samaritans and Jews despised each other. Uh, their leaders in 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 both sides uh, cautioned. Uh, their, their people just to, to avoid the others at all costs. And we see this all the way through Scripture. Um, it was uh, uh, very interesting when Jesus, for example, uh, stopped on the way through Samaria and stopped to, to talk to the woman at the well, that her first question to him was, uh, I, you're Jewish, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. You know, so that, that division was very, very deep. You know. But here Jesus has used a Samaritan in this story. And not only that, this is the one who showed compassion on the victim. In fact, he cared for him at considerable inconvenience and cost to himself. And that even included a commitment to come back and check on him later and make sure his needs were still being met. So Jesus tells this story, and he's now going to conclude it with a question to our lawyer. We find that in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? 
Now, this is a much more complex question than it appears on the surface. Jesus has done something very, very interesting here. He has changed the question. The lawyer's question was, is who is my neighbor? But now Jesus is asking, who is a neighbor to this man? You know, so being, he's, he's introducing the idea of, of uh, you know, the often stated thing that we've, we've read about loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's a two-way thing. Uh, if we're really going to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're able to put ourselves in that neighbor's position and say, how would I want to be treated by, by this other person, by, you know, by me? And uh, that, that's a necessary transformation in that thinking. You know, that's embodied in that golden rule that, that's also scriptural, you know, of, of uh, doing unto others what you would have them do to you. Put yourself in their position. How would you like to be treated? You know, and that's what Jesus has done to this question here. He has a victim who has a need, and people have, are passing by, and who's going to be a neighbor to him? You know, so that's an interesting one. Well... Our lawyer responds to the question. It seems like a simple enough question with a simple answer, uh, but as we've said, Jesus has turned the tables on it, and the lawyer has to say in verse 37, uh, and he said, the one who showed mercy to him. Now, isn't that interesting? He couldn't even make himself say the words, the Samaritan. You know, he just had to admit that he knew what the point of the story was. The one who had showed mercy was the one who was a, was a neighbor to this, this man in need. So the gospel in the story, where do we find it? Well, we really find it in Jesus' response to the lawyer's answer to the question. Jesus said to him, go and do the same. And that's another example, I think, of, of where we just tend to read right past something because we, you know, we think we understand exactly what's getting, getting said there. But actually, you have to go back to the beginning. Uh, the lawyer had asked what he needed to do to ensure that he had eternal life through his own efforts. And now Jesus has just told him, meet this standard that bar is set high. It's set impossibly high. You know, this story is usually taught uh, to encourage us to be uh, compassionate and uh, to care for those in need, and that's fine. Uh, there are hospitals and benevolent associations all over the world that have been founded by Christians on the basis of this principle right here. So that's, you know, that's a, a fine thing. But the really greater lesson in, in this passage is to demonstrate the impossibility of us finding love like this, like this Good Samaritan's love. If, it's just impossible for us to find it in ourselves. You know, the fact is we are just not able to love God as he should be loved by us. And we're just not able to really love others as we love ourselves as we should, and as the law demands, through our own effort. So that's the gospel part of this. All that's left at this point is for us to confess that and to appeal to God for mercy. And Scripture assures us that if we do, He hears that cry.
Well, here's the amazing postscript to this story. You see, once we are in Christ, once we're new creations in Him, then the fruits of the Spirit should begin to appear. So what are they? Well, we find them in Galatians 5, verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the very kind of good Samaritan virtues, the kind of a good Samaritan heart that is going to be filled with compassion for a neighbor in need. Well, let's conclude with prayer. Father, we thank you for the way your word reveals us to ourselves. We confess that we do not have within us the ability to love others or to love you as we should. We thank you for the transformation you offer us through Christ. So Father, please give us compassionate hearts. Those compassionate hearts will stand out in our culture and we ask it not to bring any glory to ourselves, but we ask it so that you will receive glory and praise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, next week's uh, background lesson, and like I say, I always encourage my class to go ahead and read it, is going to be found in uh, chapter 13, verse 22, where this one uh, left off, and we'll go through the end of chapter 16. So it's another lengthy passage. Uh, so I just encourage you to, uh, again, read it thoughtfully and prayerfully and just uh, with some expectancy that God's going to show you something new in that. So thanks very much for your attention. I uh, hope you have a very blessed week.